Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Carter, and I'm here as ever with David Robertson. And this week we have a cracking interview for you. It's um, recorded for us by Adam Miller, and it is with Catherine, Catherine Lofton and John Modern, entitled "Descriptions of Religion as Explanations of Religion." And what on earth could that mean? Well, let's find out, shall we? Hello, this is Adam Miller for the Religious Studies Project. Today, on the lovely and warm campus of Florida State University, I am talking with Professors Catherine Lofton and John Modern. Professor Lofton is the chair of the Religious Studies Department at Yale University. She is the author of Oprah, the Gospel of an Icon, the soon-to-be-published Consuming Religion, and is currently working on Bob Dylan. Professor Modern is the chair of the Religious Studies Department at Franklin and Marshall College. He is the author of Secularism in Antebellum America and is currently pursuing two book projects, one on machines and cognitive science and another on Devo and Rubber. In addition to their solo enterprises, they've worked together on a couple of things, Frequencies, for example, and most recently, a book series to be published by the University of Chicago Press titled Class 200. So, Professor Lofton, Professor Modern, welcome to the Religious Studies Project. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Adam. Mm -hmm. Um, The topic of today's discussion is the relationship between the description of religion and the explanation of religion. Could you speak a bit about how these activities are typically conceptualized, or at least how they were conceptualized in the past? Yeah, I'll I'll just say something quickly here. I mean, I think, um, you know, just to speak to... One of the kind of underlying sort of directives of Class 200 is to sort of, you know, kind of get that kind of conversation going, just that very notion of is there a relationship between description and explanation and what is it, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm not, I'm not sure what I, you know, I think I have my own opinions and my own work and own ways I deal with that relationship. Um, but the idea that um, I think underlying Class 200 is this notion that the way in which you write informs what your argument, right? And so the very categories and the kinds of sort of criteria you use to find religion, locate religion, describe religion is going to figure in to what kind of case you're making about religion. Or And, and so I think it's just that kind of move, which doesn't seem too revolutionary at all, but seems to me not, uh, not, not, not foregrounded enough in, in, in terms of what I look out on the field of religious studies over the past, let's say, you know, 50 years, it's, it's not like it's absent, but I would like to promote it. Um, and I think Class 200 is a place where we could, uh, you know, sort of promote those kinds of works. And I think that the question for us is how can the study of religion persist in the wake of post-colonial critiques? Um, what is the right to absorb yourself in material uh, so many of the great teachers that I had were people who were incredibly absorbed in archives and saw as one of this, especially when I was a graduate student, saw as one of their tasks to attempt to know the material as well as, if not better, than the religious leaders and writers that they were examining. And I think that absorbed project was partially an attempt to compensate for a feeling that perhaps the previous generation, their teachers and the teachers before them, had done some no small violence through mm-hmm. their acts of explanation that were perhaps not as strongly considered in their absorptive labor. Um, Clifford Geertz is always, I think, an interesting example here. Most of us would say he is a person who, in his writing, 
portrayed himself as a incredibly vivid uh, occupier of whatever ritual scene he was mm-hmm. in. But the subsequent critiques of his work have shown how situated his perspective was and how perhaps occluding of other economic and colonial dynamics he might have been missing. So his level of description was partial, subjective, and yet we all can't stop reading him. And I think John and I are trying to think about what are responsible acts of absorption and documentary uh, scrupulosity, which at the end of the day is, I think, what distinguishes being a scholar from being somebody who gets to be writing popular nonfiction, which is as a scholar, we, we don't necessarily get to have the payoff in the fun. We have to claim some responsibility to uh, the totality of an archive or the totality of some corpus of expression. And that can lead us to be often tedious and nerdy and in long, long circuitous routes through exciting, uh, exciting insight. But that humility, too, I think, can often be overplayed. And so we're mm-hmm. partially trying to see how can we get our responsible swagger back <laughs> as thinkers. And we tend to think that can happen partially by highlighting the ways in which prose is a huge site of hermeneutics. Okay. We may have already touched on this a little bit, um, but in what ways do you see the relationship between these um, two modes of analysis, description and explanation, um, changing? And what were some of the engines behind that change? Well, that's a good question. Um, And so, as I mentioned before, I think uh, religious studies as a a general field, um, this is not necessarily a new insight. You know, this is, for example, anthropologists went through pretty pretty intensely in the 1970s. You know, thinking about this, what has brought us to this moment where I think there is a lot of kind of momentum um, that is driven by a certain kind of renewal of, uh, you know, kind of theory in a, mm-hmm. in a general sense, you know, theory being, you know, a, a certain kind of absolute essential companion to whatever kind of archival or ethnographic work you're kind of doing. Um, and, and, and so, you know, what, what is the engine of that? Why now? You know, why, again, I think back when I was trained in the 1990s, um, that I, I went to uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And uh, at that point in my graduate school training, there just seemed to be, it was very loose and free, and there was a lot of um, emphasis on um, how we were, uh, you know, reading Walter Benjamin, reading Michel Foucault, and and thinking about them not, let's say, let's in terms of a theological sort of critique, but thinking about how do they inform the way in which I think about my field, American religion, and I think that is increasingly happening in the different graduate programs. And say, so what is going on at the level of training in the '90s that allowed that to happen? I think it might go back to a certain kind of like oh, shit, you know, there's this kind of critique that is coming out of anthropology and English and religious studies felt, I think, perhaps insulated a little bit. And there were people in the 90s who began training, I think, a generation of scholars and that, that's, that I think to think um, more subtly, subtly about their, their object of study and how they've arrived at that interest, what, you know, what's formating, formation, forming their desire to, you know, investigate what kinds of categories they're using, you know, that those kinds of mm-hmm. reflexive moves that, that, um, you know, I, I'm really, really quite excited about all the energy when I look around at graduate students now and, and young scholars that seem to sort of just be moving in that direction. And I, I think too, we're, um, we're in a time where arguments on behalf of the humanities are, are struggling to find footing in the new university 
And um, I, I'm not a student of materials that require a wide variety of languages. That is more your territory, Adam. Mm-hmm. I think the question of the responsibility of being a carrier of materials in Ugaritic, in Sanskrit, in Ethiopic that are um, not as obviously justifiable in the contemporary neoliberal university. Mm -hmm. So one of the things we're trying to think about is how to uh, reignite interest in materials that don't, perhaps importantly, don't have relevancy, Mm -hmm. which is the call, at least in my administrative time and place, how do we argue for these materials being relevant to the propagation of this high-powered intellectual species we're training as undergraduates? And we're, we're having a hard time justifying some, some lines for the kind of work that, you know, up until I think the early 1980s, it was just axiomatic that a certain form of classicism, a certain practice of philology, and the study of religion, I think, was partially insulated from certain theoretical debates because the majority of its departments had a lot of people who were doing that kind of incredibly critical, painstaking, slow work Mm -hmm. for which the payoffs would be glorious, but they would often be many more years. And the payoff also would often be something that that would precisely critique the presentism of a lot of what I think the humanities gets formed in 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 the late 90s. So so I think we're thinking about a time where we want to uh, engender studies that have uh, practices and methodologies that are not entirely uh, efficient in the way that I think the capitalist university would like to see us be. And so if Mm -hmm. our series can be a part of encouraging a person to spend more time in those languages, that's partially what we mean when we're recouping languages. We're also recouping a tradition of scholarly interest that we think can still survive even after post-colonialism's critique of Orientalism, that there's still so much to be said about these massive archives of material. And they need places to be published that are not, you know, places where the books can cost $500 and have like mm-hmm. a 40 book run in Europe. So yeah. we're trying, we're trying to engender that among many brothers and sisters who are working in territories that I think it's harder and harder mm-hmm. to make the case for the removal of their materials from the mainstream tale of contemporary humanities. I just slammed the table and you did not create sonic boom in the course of my giving sermons about the contemporary humanities. So. Well, do you think, I mean, I was thinking about that moment. I mean, we live in this moment right now where we do feel this, you know, impingement of, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, liberalism or a kind of, uh, kind of crass capitalistic ethos. You know, how does that align? And I'm thinking out loud. So how does that align in, in a way in which something like a post-Assad, like 1993 or 83, when did he publish his Critique of Gear? It's like, it was like yeah, 83, it was 83 yeah. you know, but like a certain way in which it arrives on the scene in religious studies probably in the 90s. Yes. You know, that I think, you know, this it, it inspires, I think, people who feel that impingement to be like, oh, my God, religion is at the, the center of whatever I am sensing, you know, is at the center of this project of modernity in a way that. I think gave people a certain kind of, wow, this is exciting. And I I think that's something about, you know, kind of goes back to this question, you know, like, wow, this this is a a scholar and, you know, post-Assad stuff with with students like Charles Hershkin and Saba Mahmoud and and even at Frame, it's these places where I think, you know, really kind of put to the fore not only religion as kind of constitutive of modernity on some level or, you know, giving you a kind of analytic purchase on modernity that you'd never realized that you had as a religious studies scholar. Um, and combined with uh, you know, a way in which you can revisit these massive archives and these okay. kinds of you know scholarly sort of corners that seem to be well trod and you know everybody kind of knows exactly what happened, but to see them with a kind of new light and with a kind of newfound energy, 
Um, I think that sort of, you know, corresponds a little bit with the kind of historical moment that we're in. Yes. It's, it's not we just arrived here in 2016. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's been going on for a while. But. Talk, I'm reminded, though, that you, you and I would both come uh, at this through some of the same texts, but... Um, but had different enemies maybe along the way. Mm. We could talk about the struggles of the characters who we felt we were speaking with and through. But I have of late started thinking that there's sort of two, there's the study of religion and there's religious studies, and that mm. those are actually very distinct territories of professional labor. And the reason I say that is because if we went to every department of religion and department of religious studies in the country and did a survey of who have read Talal Asad, let's make a list of Tomo Kamasuza, I think we'd yeah. be surprised by a real divide would emerge, at least in the departments I've become familiar with, with a lot of the people who often occupy name chairs and storied scriptural objects that are what the departments of religion get to exist for. They are not necessarily, and here I, I mean both East-West, you know, yeah, ancient, yeah. Modern, that, that those questions of religious studies seem often to be an incursion upon that work of uh, kind of reclaiming and absorbing. Stop telling me that my subjectivity is being <laughs> imputed. And so, so that there's, yeah. there, and I think that there's a kind of simmering struggle um, to figure out is the future of the study of religion in uh, the, the, the acts of critique that are being propounded by people who are, I think, largely rightly motivated to reconcile religion as an object of political concern, mm-hmm. and those who see themselves as still importantly carriers of religion, that they're bringing rabbinics into the modern, that they're bringing uh, the piranhas on board, that they still are, and that's not to say they don't possess very critical relationships to those materials, but they're concerned about the loss of those archives even more than they are at times, I think, with um, occupying the right cultural politics of interpretation. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's often, I guess the one way we put it is I sometimes think, you know, um, this divide, we used to describe that as a divide between Nasser and Jar, but I actually think Jar and Nasser, or, or the uh, method and theory in the study of religion, the journal arm of, of Nasser, are actually much closer to each other than at least a lot of the people that, that I, I encounter at Columbia and Harvard and Yale, where I think there's a real divide between those who have never touched those journals hmm. and stay very much in their specialty territories and, and think they have separate arguments that are more in line with classics, mm-hmm. NELK, and history departments for their perpetuation, whereas we're talking anthropology, English. Well, it's, but it's also a historical reflexivity that I think our serious demands and yes. I think both our works were like, okay, yeah. that, this is, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for that kind of close detail. I, I support, I, I, I celebrate it, yeah. right? But I'm just sort of always struck by the kind of move like don't impugn my subjectivity or please don't historicize me. Yeah. You know, I yes. mean, you know, please do oh, not yeah. historicize me. I just had a dialogue with someone like that the other day. And this person who has to go, I have to remove their gender because it would be too obvious. <laughs> was just like, I have absolutely no reason for doing this incredibly obsessive scholarly project. Why would anyone want to think about the rationale behind yeah. that? And I do think though, that is a divide. It, I think that's not just a quirky habit of, I think there's a, an idea that humanism is not what you and I take it to be, which is a problem of interpretation. The yeah. interpreter is totally being impugned with the applicant. And they think that they're perhaps more in the realm of the social sciences. Well, but, but isn't, you know, I, I get into these arguments too. And isn't, yes. isn't that kind of reflexivity part and parcel to a scientific method? Like a good scientist yes. will understand how they've arrived at a problem. Yes. A, good, a good scientist will account for, in, you know, ecological compounds. 
But right? that you're you know still I mean? putting outside yourself. They're not. They don't think their their autobiographical selves have anything. And that there, we just sound like people asking for an, a positive in your introduction. Yes. As raised a Catholic, fallen well, away. You know, I, and in a sense, I think we everybody can. Sort to of be re- clear, our series demands that you never say yes, things like never. That. Please don't do that. Please do not. Yeah, because there is that. There is. There's that, no lyricism to that. There's there is that excessive, you know, straw man, right? Yes. You know, that kind of confessional opening, which is going to figure into how they. And yeah, that's a little, you know, but yeah. to be, you know, like, okay, I'm going to use the word secular. Yeah. How am I using it? Mm-hmm. You know, what yes. goes into the making of that? What am I, you know, just, is it a weapon? Is, is it, it a collective? Like, yes. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Well, how, where, you know, and just that level. And then how does that then figure into your work seems to me, you know, at the end of the day, a much more thorough and responsible mm-hmm. kind of approach than simply, again, don't historicize me or pretend some world doesn't exist. Like you just want to close your eyes and don't see it. Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> nice answer. Uh, so it seems you're advocating that we should all engage in the activity of answering the so what, who cares question, which I like that. Yeah. That's I tell my nice. students, like, you know, yes. you better not give me a conclusion, which is just some summarizing the first five pages. You yes. need to tell me why, why I just read your paper. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Um, so while we're on the, so what question, how do you guys deal with that? Um, in your own work and, and also bringing in materials and excitement. We were talking about that earlier. Um, how do you answer the, so what question for your own work and what are some of the materials you're working with? And, uh, yeah. why should I read you? I mean, I'm going to, <laughs> wow. but why? Sh- it's a big one. Yeah. I will read you though. Thank you. Uh, yes. I, I, this, you know, I think I am. I, I have a total cop out because I work. I'm, I, I've become over time a historian of the present, and that makes my life so easy. And that's why. I, that's why I go out of my way to talk about those who I think occupy the so what question in harder territory. So, mm-hmm. so the two things I, I completed most recently was one an extended thinking about uh, the Goldman Sachs group, and for me the question is how does something persist that incurs such revulsion, anguish, and I think a pretty recorded acts of malfeasance. Mm-hmm. So the question is, let's figure out why the bad continues to exist rather than simply sit in the comments feeds and say, these terrible people keep on. <laughs> so I was attempting to figure out what, what makes something um, that is so wrong seem so right. And actually what ended up transfixing me and perhaps predictably because I'm a scholar of religion is that uh, it's not just that it seems so right. It actually, once you become absorbed in the Borg that is the Golden Sachs group, you start very quickly understanding their logic, not unlike if you absorb yourself in the Talmud or you absorb yourself uh, in Hadith, you see a total world system, a way of mm-hmm. understanding every feature of the world. Um, similarly, I just finished a, a short piece on the Kardashians, the exact same issue for me, which is, you know, my stepdaughter was consuming kind Kylie Jenner like heroin, and I found it <laughs> just shocking. And and you know, she's living with these two very grumpy, fierce, progressive lesbians. What is she doing? Consuming the lip kit of Kylie Jenner. And I, I found it, um, and actually it really made it was a, a beautiful way, first of all, to come to understand her and her life in a much greater way, and to see, frankly, some of the the ways in which the, the Kardashians are a reaction against and a a new creation of queer family. Um, mm-hmm. So rather than seeing it as this incursion in my home, I all of a sudden <laughs> saw and began through conversation to recognize how for a lot of the consumers of the Kardashians, it's their tribal way and their weird queer tribal way. Mm-hmm. So that they will keep going to Lamar's bedside, Lamar being the estranged soon to be ex-husband of Khloe Kardashian. <laughs> <laughs> so he's <laughs> hospitalized after ODing at a cat house in Nevada. The point is that <laughs> to these, are, these are way too many details 
for a podcast that should have more form. But the point that I want to underline is that what, what the question I, want, I sought to answer was, what um, what does it mean to work so hard to keep up with this family? Which mm-hmm. is the uh, I think the the reason that people. So so for but I think the relevancy questions are so. Um, are much quicker and easier when you're working in materials where your undergraduate population is simultaneously, you know, consuming or going to be employed by. I am more interested in the challenge of so what questions of the selection of materials to which we have no contemporary recourse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if you can find a question of a difference between when you're dealing with Devo or you're dealing with, well, is of course a historical object, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. but, but versus thinking about 19th century spiritualists. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, my work, I'm thinking about secularism. In a lot of ways, I think uh, the so what, it was, a, you know, I think we use the language of experiment in Class 200 a lot. You know, Class 200, we want experimental works, and by which we mean people who make wagers. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, what if I look at it this way or go this way? What, 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 what is the payoff? And so not knowing exactly what the payoff is at the very beginning, but sort of go through that exercise. <clears throat> and so secularism in antebellum America you know, it was a kind of exercise in imminent critique. That's the name of your book. What? That Secularism in Antibellum America. Yes. And so that's what you say. I think it's just described historically this thing. In Secularism in Antibellum America. Yeah, yes, yes. Which also, Explanation, description, yeah. completely. Yeah. And it's so brilliant. <laughs> Beautifully. And so, like, what I was trying to do in that book was sort of, uh, again, an exercise in imminent critique, you know, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, to try to say, okay, you know, we, we live in a, a, a kind of a, a moment where, at least from my perspective, when we think about American religious history, it's often coded as a kind of story of liberation, a story of pluralism, of radical diversity, of a kind of flowering of freedom um, on some level. And I, I think I tried to tell a story to sort of think about, like, what, what about, what are the closures that are happening in the 19th century, the kinds of ways in which the conditions of possibility are you know, are, 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 are in a sense retracting on some level about what can happen. And one of the things I tried to do in that book was to sort of not, not just historicize myself, but historicize a kind of conversation that's going on in the present to try to bring, you know, contemporary historians who are writing about the 19th century, you know, and actors in the 19th century into, I'll, I'll put them on the same page and try to sort of think about like the power of certain kinds of narratives and the kinds of effects of certain kinds of narratives about religion and about history and about the human. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was, that was my, that was what I tried to do. I yeah. Think, that was, now that you say that, that is exactly what you did. And it was really brilliant and quite devastating. I think that that's one of the ways in which your work had a strong effect was that its concept of historiography was considered its live contemporary relevance. And so in, in introducing historiography as, as opposed to what we're trained to do, which is a rehearsal at which I am at the top of the family tree. Instead, I think John Lasso, basically the previous two generations, and brought them into, and does bring into his writing, a kind of contemporary conversation about how do we how do we talk about the, the, how do we use the words that we have decided are the ones to mark the people that we've all commonly decided are marked as religious mm-hmm. or secular? And so that, that does seem to be one of the key resolutions when I think about really excellent work that's working in pre-modern materials. It finds a way to think about, to think aloud in the text about why we have continued to select this documentary archive, whether it's, what are not just the questions of historical precision, when did this ritual become that ritual, you know, when did that, but in fact, why are we deciding to make those shifts in, in this particular historical moment? And if you think about our favorite, our favorite old archaic books, they always have that kind of live prescience to them and a sense of a horizontal view of their moment as forming their, which without any recourse to their personal identity yeah, politics, yeah, which I is, mean, yeah. yeah. 
And it goes back to it's it's a it's a it's a problem of it's not a problem it's an issue of articulation right because yeah. it's not like most scholars are aware that you know most scholars do historicize themselves probably when yeah. they're doing the work but it's about how do you then get that whatever's going on in that that historicization onto the page yes. in a way that seems part of the thing you're doing as opposed to like well chapter two I'm going to historicize myself for a second <laughs> you know and but that you know in a way to sort of do that in a way that's compelling and as you say brings an energy yes. right because we want to read books that are energetic Wait. right i mean yeah time is too short i don't have no time left to read all the good books and i just want to spend my time reading really good books right you know I feel yeah yeah um so i guess my next question would uh sort of touch on a little bit of what you said professor lofton about uh pre-modern materials um and how do we justify studying them i mean for someone like myself who works on indian buddhism like yeah. i'm always trying to figure out why I'm doing that <laughs> and like what right do I have to say one thing or another is religion and sort of carve up the world with my categories. Um, I was wondering if both of you could speak to how description and explanation sort of come together or I'm, I'm not entirely sure how I want to phrase this. Um, I, I can totally, I, I, I totally, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's an inchoate challenge mm-hmm. because the two received traditions, at least that I, I have witnessed are one, the argument is, um, this is an eloquent tradition. That is when we speak about Theravada, but mm-hmm. that we are Mahayana. This, these are just eloquent traditions. They mm-hmm. are rich sources of civilizational formation, the sort of classic mid, you know, post-World War II argument for why must we study this materials? Because they were great and great people read them and yeah. used them to organize great governments. Mm-hmm. The other argument has been one of finding the kind of present of Buddhism and, con- and that if you want to do a reasonable religious literacy, we need guys like you in order to provide this sort of rich topography of the total density and mm-hmm. contradictions of a tradition that is never simply seven principles to being a decent person. So both of those arguments, I think we've received in the present with some ambivalence. Yeah. You know, what is it to continue to talk about texts being valuable simply for their moral value or cultural heft? And, and I think we're also pretty ambivalent about the question of, is it right to try to talk to any, any student, to a greater public about love of Buddhists because you understand a textual tradition that they may or may not have a relationship to. So, mm-hmm. so is the meaning religious literacy as a, as a peacekeeping mission, you yeah. know, that if we understood. So then what are the alternatives? Well, I, I, I do, I do think to return to, to John's model that the question is as much as possible to uh, think about the ways in which you're encountering these materials and bringing alive what are the dissonant aspects of that encounter. Mm-hmm. And I think about the people who, who, who write in these materials, um, two models, one uh, in my own department, Andrew Quitman, who's written so beautifully, uh, I think, about the genealogy by which we receive certain figures mm-hmm. within the Tibetan tradition and how much scholarly tradition and lay interest form our receipt. And he does this through just incredibly laborious generation after generation. How do these figures come to us in the form that they do? And I think by doing that shows us that any idea of iconicity is itself always a historical artifact and not a perpetuity. And I just find that always a moving lesson to relearn again. So great genealogist is one, mm, yeah. one strategy in that. Um, but, but I, but I also think, you know, when you think about like Bob Sharp's work, you know, mm-hmm. that, that is a person who is so aware of the ways in which, uh, 
encounter between different kinds of people marked multiply, but certainly partially by textual traditions that they carry forward, is going to have a huge role to play in the formation of modernity. And so he's very conscious of what Mm -hmm. modernism is as a problem in the history of Buddhism. But also more deeply is is just really committed to seeing, um, well, this would be my reading, which would be a better speaker on this point, but I I just always took him as saying that, that just because we know that Buddhism cannot be one thing does not mean that it is not being thrown around and exchanged and yeah. talked about as this kind of comprehensive object, just like Christianity. And we can we just turn on our television to watch elections to know that we're constantly tossing consolidated images around poorly. Mm-hmm. The job of a scholar is to say, why this form of poorly tossing around now? <laughs> yeah. And so to think that, because my guess is you'll find that as easily in the 9th century and the 11th century as we do in the 21st. And so to write a history about tossing around. Yes. You know, yeah. In a sense, because I think a more in, in, in addition to genealogy, I mean, it's almost like a reception history. So, you know, you have this kind of ancient tradition. It's very exciting. You have to go through hundreds of years of, yeah. you know, of, of a certain kind of translation of, of like, where is this? Well, how has it arrived here? Oh, my God, it went there. It went there. It went there. Mm-hmm. And for me, it just seems like, wow, that is I get excited. I get jitters. Like, wow, that is an amazing story to tell. Uh, about let's say you know a particular ritual you know and how it's received where it you know this first discovered you know mm-hmm. and that, the politics involved in the 18th night and it's for me that would be a story that you know is that energy story as opposed to a story just like well you know a kind of classic kind of Iliadian kind of thing where you'd be like this is what's going on we have you know it's orientation here we have we have its uh, effects here and uh, the end of story, you know? And, and so there's that kind of, re- how that reflexivity, it seems like there's more fodder mm-hmm. for reflexivity in the ancient traditions in a lot of ways. When, you know, the Kardashians, like, yeah, it's kind of an interesting, it's there's, hard. There's, there's like a way in which that there's an intensity yeah. of reflexivity, but it's a very, well, it's, small, it's like, wow. He's making a gesture yeah. of like, you know, it's one of the things that I think that, that, that there are privileges is an overabundance of data. Yeah. So if you work in the mm-hmm. modern period, and any, so, so if I'm studying the Kardashians, the amount of material I can study is not just, it's like, it, it's 19,000 times the number of texts in the New Testament. It is so much material. Every day. And, and every day. <laughs> All the tweets. And yeah, yeah. Just Google. And so, you know, but, and, and I think what I get so entranced by is the question of what we can know with limited archive and the space, because those are, of course, just the gaps in interpersonal interpretation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I got an elevator, I hear someone exhale, I have a whole story for them. And that's what a, what's what a brilliant reader the Talmud does. It's sort of a brilliant reader of, of any textual. They take a very small thing mm-hmm. and they extrapolate from that an, an entire world. And what are the responsible ways of doing that? And what are the ways that you can you can perhaps convey uh, the radically different ways of shaping the world? Which I, I sometimes think that one of the downsides of which John has written on very beautiful, the downside of kind of consolidating secularism is is counter what. Alternatives seem very hard to identify or name. That it seems inconceivable. It will be absorbed so quickly mm-hmm. by a corporate whole, and, and the and the radicalism of a time where there was a little bit less of that permeation of, of the mediate sphere. Yeah. All right. Here, here. Um, that's about all I got for you. Okay. So, if you guys have any closing things that you want to say, or we can just wrap it up. So we are really interested in receiving inquiries from anybody who is writing work that they are excited about, that they feel like uh, captures their best writerly voice, and most importantly, is seeking to explain something that often, you know, is causing them challenges. As often, I think some of the best and bravest work is not obviously of one subfield or another, but is actually crossing boundaries and refusing certain disciplinary boundaries. So mm. we invite your email inquiries. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. 
It's a pleasure talking to you. It was wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you. Adam. Thanks very much for that, Adam. Uh, really good to have you on board as an interviewer, and we hope to have many more in the future. Uh, in, who knows? Indeed, it's uh, it's always great to uh, bring new people into the team. And speaking of which, um, we're looking for uh, new people to write responses for us. We're looking for people to join our respondents team. And we're, we're also even looking for potentially some more interviewers as well, you know, but particularly respondents. Indeed. Um, if you fancy being included on our um, respondents mailing list and receiving special emails from from Kevin Whiteside, our uh, responses uh, editor, um, every so often, finding out what goes on behind the scenes of the Religious Studies Project and potentially yeah. writing a response for us, please do send a quick note to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com and Tommy will add you to that list. You don't have to write anything. Yeah. You don't have to be qualified to do anything. We're really keen for... Um, postgraduates and even undergraduate students to get involved and if something comes up that you have an interest in writing a quick response on then you're more than welcome to yeah. jump in and we're always keen to keep the um, rubric quite wide so it can be an expansion on the interview a uh, critique of the interview some reflections some thoughts that the interview happened to to spark um it could be just one thing that the interviewer said that connects with your own research or it could be really in-depth related to the interview topic and um, we're, we're quite liberal in that sense um and it, yeah it's nice you, you get a, a sense of what's coming up in the, in the next months on the rsp that listeners uh, don't find out so it's Indeed. So please don't be shy if you think this is something you'd like to get involved in or even just potentially um, get involved in. Do send a quick email with your email address to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com. We should also do a shout out to the Open University at Milton Keynes because David and I are there right now um, as this podcast is going out. Um, how did that happen? Well, we're actually going to be talking about that in Milton Keynes, how, how you run a digital humanities enterprise like this and manage to publish podcasts whilst not being by your computer. Indeed. Um, um, so if you're one of the people there, hi, yeah. um, you might be listening even as we do the session. Who knows? <laughs> we, but, we don't know. <laughs> but otherwise you'll be hearing uh, the fruits of that session and perhaps even seeing the fruits of the session if our video cameras arrive in time um, some point soon. Absolutely. A few things to flag up. Next week, we've got Dusty Hosley speaking with Lynn Davidman on uh, conversion and deconversion as concepts in the study of religion. And we should flag up, of course, the BASR and Nasser for their generous support. Indeed. And uh, one thing that we're hoping to do with this um, generous support that we're now receiving um, is we're going to run our very first competition. We would like in order to promote uh, the Religious Studies Project more widely, uh, to produce a poster and send one, or more than one, to every Religious Studies Department in the world. In the world. In the world. What we're going to do is we're running this competition. If you are a budding designer with a love for RS and the RSP, we want you to design us a poster. And if yours is the selected winning entry then we will pay to have it printed up and sent to every uh, department in the world and you'll be able to see your work and your name on the walls of any department that you go into exactly but you know it'll also go on the website and social media absolutely and, and i know we aren't necessarily able to offer massive financial 
recompense um hopefully that kudos of being associated with the rsp and getting your work out there might be um something you'd be interested in indeed so again there'll be um more information about this on the facebook page and other social media plus on the website but in the meantime if you want to if you have any questions to ask or if you want to send in in a draft of your entry then you can send it as ever to editors at religiousstudiesproject.com don't forget our Facebook page, Twitter, Google+, YouTube, and our Amazon links, which are an excellent source of revenue for the RSP at no additional cost to you. If you're .com.co.uk or .ca, just go to our website, click the link, and then whatever you buy, we'll get a small percentage of that. And it you know, it's really couldn't be any easier. But for now, thanks for listening. <laughs>